you are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Today's reading is from Luke chapter 1. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the land of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into a path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. Amen. Amen. Thank you, James. Appreciate that. And Merry Christmas, everybody. So great to see you. You're glad you're here today, this afternoon with us at Mosaic at our fourth service, always our favorite uh, service. And as you can gather from the video this month leading up to and including Christmas Eve, we're looking at the things that we long for. I think most within ourselves, most within the world around us. And as we see those things, those gifts, I think we're going to find that those things are the things that Jesus came to bring us all along. And so far we looked at the gift of peace. Last week you heard in Dr. Smith's excellent message, we heard about the gift of truth. And uh, today we're looking at the same story, but at a different gift in the story. I think that we all long for in an incredibly deep, maybe even primal kind of way. And here's why I know that this gift is something that we all really long for, that we all really need. It's because even though we may not want to give this gift... We all want to receive this gift. We may not want to hand this gift out or extend this gift to others when we're wronged, but we want it even when we don't deserve it. This gift is something that we tend to deny for others, but oh, we tend to demand for ourselves. This gift, it's at the bottom of so much that we experience in life that's good and it's at the bottom of so much that we long to feel in any moment of life. But this gift, though, this thing that we long for can seem like it's in shorter and shorter and shorter supply today in our fractured culture polarized culture, outrage-fueled culture. But many years ago, many years ago in the first century AD, there was a person, there was a man who lived in a culture similar to ours in many ways, where this same gift also seemed in short supply like it seems in ours. Oh, but when this person experienced this gift we're going to look at today, when he saw this gift, this gift literally changed his life. Who was this person and what was the gift he was given. Well, this person was an old Jewish priest. His name was Zechariah. We know about Zechariah because of a doctor turned reporter named Luke. And Luke, Luke did not grow up as a Christian. Luke only became a Christian later in life. But Luke in his day picked up pen and parchment and went to work to document and to account for the reason and the evidence that he had for becoming a Christian, which was, oh, it was the amazing life. It was the bloody death. It was the literal resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. 
Nazareth from the dead. And Luke, Luke, because he went around, because he interviewed all the eyewitnesses he could find, all the people that had lived through the Jesus story, those eyewitnesses told him that to understand the Jesus story, you had to first begin with an unlikely couple named Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. And Luke tells us that they lived under the reign of Roman terror. They lived during the last days of the reign of Herod, King Herod. And King Herod was known for two things primarily. Herod was known for building big buildings and Herod was known for killing lots of people even in his own family. But, but, but Zechariah was a priest, which meant that he took care of the Jewish temple in the days of the reign of terror of Herod. And to add to Zechariah's misery as a Jew under the reign of, of Herod, Zechariah, as you heard last week, Zechariah was stigmatized. He and his wife had no children in a day, in an age, in a time where having children meant everything, especially to have sons, to be without a son in that day was to face the same kind of social stigma you may feel you face today for not having this or living there or not having that or some, something culture says is important. But, but, but Zechariah lived a stigmatized life under a reign of terror. And yet in Luke 1, Luke records that one day Zechariah's life changed because one day one day Zechariah's number came up in quite a a literal way you see there were in his day around 20,000 priests who served in some capacity at that Jewish temple that Herod had built as one of his buildings but that number was so large that the temple leaders would cast lots they would roll the dice literally to determine who would do what sacrifice and there was the first lot that was cast which determined the priest who cleansed the altar and who prepared the fire there was the second lot which determined who would perform the actual sacrifice and those were good and those were fine but the third lot oh the third lot was different because to have one's name called to have one's number come up for the third lot was a once in a lifetime opportunity and here's why the person chosen to do the third lot was the one responsible for offering the incense in the center of the Jewish temple praying a special prayer on the day called the day of atonement it was a holy day in in, in Israel and on that day in that day one priest would go into the center of in the forbidden area of that temple and offer a prayer for his own sins for the sins of his people and a prayer for the future of his nation Now, hundreds and hundreds of people would gather outside and they would watch and they would talk as the first priest would come and the first priest would go and they would watch and they would talk as the second priest would come and the second priest would go. But there was silence when the third priest went in. There was a national collective holding of the breath as their lone figure and representative went in and that breath was held until the representative came back out. Now, this would normally take only a few minutes. So when Zechariah went in, and didn't come back out, they knew something was wrong, except, except something wasn't going wrong that day. Something was going very, very right that day. Because an angel was appearing to Zechariah. And by the way, by the way, don't let that word angel throw you. You know, because if there is, if there is after all, a supernatural, all-powerful, creative being you say you believe in, we call God, then surely he can create other beings beside himself. You know, sort of like you 
and me, for example, exhibit A, right? Except angels are a different species altogether. The Old and the New Testaments, front to back, testify to their existence. And here, one of them shows up, sent by God into that forbidden place. And tells Zechariah he will have a son. And that his son will be the herald, be the go-before guy, be the big game announcer who will announce the arrival of the one that every priest had prayed for for centuries. And Zechariah was told that his son, to be named John, would be the announcer of the Messiah, the one who would redeem the Jewish people, be the savior of the world. And so when Zechariah heard he was going to be the impossible father of an impossible child who would be the intro act to the, the impossible dream come true, that Messiah, Zechariah didn't believe it because come on, who would believe that? Come on, would you believe that? Come on, would I believe that? But he didn't believe it, and he was struck mute. And so, so for the first time ever, a priest walked out of that room with nothing to say. And Zechariah went home speechless, literally, at what he had heard. Oh, but like we saw last week, a few months later, when that impossible go-before boy was born, Zechariah grabbed a tablet, and he wrote down the name of what his boy should be, that it should be John and then. And then, and then Zechariah's mouth was opened, then his tongue was loosed, and Zechariah began to do something strange for a dignified old priest, an old man. Zechariah began to sing. He began to sing. And do you know what this old man sang about? Well, in his song, theologian scholars call it the Benedictus. It's a Latin word which literally means the good word. Benedictus means the blessed word. Benedictus means the happy word. Zechariah, the old priest, sings about one thing. Zechariah sings about the blessed gift of mercy. He sings about the gift of mercy. That's the gift we're looking at today that he discovered that changed his life. The gift of mercy, it's one gift in two parts. We're going to take a look at each. And Zechariah begins his song like this, verse 68. He sings this, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come to his people and redeemed them. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us, that means a king, in the house of his servant David, like he said he would a long time ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. So what's he saying here? Well, first, Zechariah is saying, singing, that the mercy, the mercy of God, not, not human mercy, but divine mercy, mercy looks like covenant keeping. He's saying mercy looks like covenant keeping. He's saying, God, you've shown mercy by remembering the covenant you made a long time ago that you promised to one person named Abraham. Because about 2,000 years before this, God had called out one person named Abraham, also an old man with no sons of his own. And he said, Abraham, if you'll trust me. Abraham, if you'll follow me. Abraham, if you'll walk faithfully before me. Abraham, I'll make you not only a father to another impossible son, but Abraham, I'll make you the father of many nations. And somehow, Abraham, though I'm not going to tell you how now, through another impossible son born one day, Messiah, I'm going to bless the whole world. And so right here, right now, Zechariah is saying, hey, if that angel is right, and somehow, somehow, the whole, you know, he's saying the whole me not being able to speak thing has convinced me the angel is right. 
Somehow if the angel is right, and again, somehow my elderly wife and I being able to conceive has convinced me the angel's probably right. If the angel is right, God is keeping his promise and remembering his covenant to us. So mercy, he's saying, mercy looks like God remaining in relationship with people over the centuries, not quitting on people, though he deserved it, not ending his relationship with us, though he could have, but mercy looks like God being a relationship covenant keeper. Now, you're hearing this, you're thinking, man, that is not how we roll today. Man, that is not how the U.S. of A. rolls today. We don't do this, man. We don't covenant keep. You're thinking, man, we don't do this. No, what do we do? No, we, we ghost. <laughs> we, we bounce, right? I mean, we shoot the deuce and call it a day. We, we dispose of relationships, don't we? We can unfriend with a click. <laughs> we struggle with commitment, let alone covenant keeping, But let me ask you today, what if, what if this thing, what if this gift called the covenant-keeping mercy of God were at the very core of your life or your marriage, your friendships at the core of this church? What would that look like? Hmm? Well, actually, let's just do the, let's ask the opposite of that for a second. Let's, let's like go to the dark side for a second and ask, well, what would mercy not look like? Well, in the end, I'll put it like this. Mercy isn't this. Mercy isn't what social psychologists called, and maybe you know this, call the fundamental attribution error or bias. Fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error is the name given to the thing that you do, the thing that I do, when there is a gap created in our relationship somehow, some relationship that you have. Whenever there's a gap, uh, whenever you do something, Uh, I don't like, or I say something you don't like, or I don't do what you think I ought to have done, or you don't reply to the email or the text or whatever. Whenever there's some kind of gap created, sociologists tell us that human beings almost always put something particular in that gap. And almost every time human beings insert this thing called the fundamental attribution error. And the fundamental attribution error says that when you create the gap, I fundamentally attribute the gap (laughs) to some deficiency in you, some bad thing in you, some character flaw in you. But when I create the gap, I attribute the gap to some problem outside me. The fundamental attribution error looks like me putting judgment on you in the gap, but me giving grace to me. Pretty convenient, right? When you blow it, in other words, it's your character. When I blow it, it's only my environment, of which you are a part, by the way. Point is, can you see even secular psychologists said that in a relationship, mercy is the gift that we all long for ourselves. Oh, but we have such a hard time giving to others. But church, if we'll do this, if we'll do the opposite of this, if we will model God's covenant keeping mercy, stay in relationship, put down the judgment, put mercy in the gap. Maybe, maybe like that angel made Zachariah, maybe we can make somebody sing. Because after all, didn't Jesus say, come on, blessed are the who? The judgmental. Oh, wait, no, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. No, no. Blessed are the perpetually outraged. Jesus said, oh, wait, no, he didn't say that. Come on. Blessed are the merciful, the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So mercy, Zachariah sings, it looks like covenant keeping when you don't have to, finding a way to continue to relate when you might have every reason for walking away. And listen, I'm not talking about fundamentally abusive situations today, but I am talking about 
fundamentally hard ones, difficult ones. Blessed are the ones who put mercy in the gap. But mercy also looks like something else. Zechariah sings on, he sort of, verse 2, stands at 2. Then now he's singing about his son to be born, John the Baptist. And he says, in you, my child, second verse, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. Look at this connection. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. There's the word again. The second verse, he's saying God's mercy doesn't just look like covenant keeping here. It also looks like forgiveness seeking, forgiveness seeking. Zechariah is saying if we really grasped what the covenant keeping mercy of God was like, we would be people who sought out forgiveness for our own sins. Why is this? I'll tell you a story. When Carrie and I had been married about a month, this was like two or three years ago, something tragically hilariously happened, although I'm pretty sure she wouldn't describe it as hilarious. Uh, about a month into our marriage, it was such a blissful time, of course. It was about to be abruptly ended, though. Uh, about a month into our marriage, uh, we got something in the mail. A cousin of hers had mailed us something, and I, and I received the box, and I opened the box, and inside the box, I found some photos that were in the box, and then I threw the box away. But little did I know that I had not noticed and therefore I had unintentionally thrown away something irreplaceable. I had unintentionally thrown away the rose petals that had lined the walkway, y'all, to the altar where we got married. They had lined the walkway to the altar and her cousin had gone after the ceremony and got down on her hands and her knees and had picked up these rose petals and collected them by hand and then had them dried so we could have those rose petals from our marriage, our wedding, for forever. Of course, except we didn't have them for forever because I threw them in the dumpster behind our first apartment. Um, you know, baby, baby, where did our love go? The Supreme saying, apparently ours, Morgan and Carrie's went in the dumpster. Um, now, you know, at that point, when someone might have been confronted by tears and hurt feelings, what should a person do? What should a man do? <laughs> well, th- uh, there are apparently three options. And by the way, I realized it all went wrong when I just signed for the box. If I hadn't signed for the thing in the first place, I could have gotten off the hook. But anyway, so what do you, that was a joke, but what do you do? The three options. First option A, a person could shrug it off like, well, you know, honey, it was like your cousin's fault. She didn't make those petals obvious enough. Like fundamental attribution error, right? Or B, I could say, you know, yeah, I didn't mean to do it. You should just get over it. Not good. Yeah, right, not good. And let's just say, hypothetically speaking, if you were a new husband, if I were a new husband, I may or may not have opted for option B in that moment. So I'm just saying that if that was you, you should not. This is husband tip 101 there. Um, Or I could... Could have, should have opted for option C and just to seek forgiveness. I could have, should have sought forgiveness and just said, I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me for doing that? Now, someone after the first, or the last service came up to us and said, you know, Karen, I'm so, that's amazing that you've forgiven Morgan for that. It was such, you know, for that, doing that. And she said, it's okay. He's done way worse stuff since, since then. <laughs> so, you know, there's that too. So. Love you too. What does seeking forgiveness do? Seeking forgiveness, the point is, heals the relationship, right? Brings people back together. And you ask, well, why should you, why should I, why should anyone ask for forgiveness for such like a small little thing like that? Well, here's why. 
If I were remembering, if I were uh, thinking about the covenant-keeping mercy of God, I would have remembered I had already received countless moments of covenant-keeping mercy from Almighty God for all my little things and for all my big things. Therefore, I can ask for forgiveness from someone else. Now, this whole like rose petals and the dumpster thing, it feels kind of funny. It sounds kind of harmless, but let's just, let's just take a moment and expand that idea. Blow it out a whole bunch from the micro to the macro and look at that idea that seeking forgiveness heals relationship. What about when it comes to another kind of conversation, something that's even bigger in our nation, in the U.S., because, because we talk about this here sometimes. What about the conversation when it comes to race in our country. Because after all, it isn't just individuals who need healing, right, and forgiveness, or need salvation. Big structures need healing as well, right? And you can see this because the word salvation, by the way, is used by Zechariah both in the context of corporate liberation, freedom, structure stuff. He says, God, you've given us salvation from those who hate us, from our enemies. And Zechariah sings about salvation from people's personal sins as well. But, but, but if you know that there's been, for example, there's been wounding in someone's life racially, maybe from a person who looks like you or is connected to you, what could close that gap? Well, at our last TGA meeting here at Mosaic, that's shorthand for the Gospel Inn. That's, a, that's our ministry that tries to uh, help people reconcile across big conversation points, difficult conversation points. And let's just point out and say, there's, man, that's really hard work. I mean, the media is not trying to do this. Not a lot of people are trying to do this, but we're trying to do this. Carrie and I, and that night, were in a little small group with this amazing Chinese-American couple. And they talked about the ways, because they were asked to talk about it, uh, about the ways in which they had been, though they had been born in the U.S., though they had had grown up here as Americans, they had been made fun of or ostracized for their ethnicity. And they talked about the ways in which those same things that had been done to them a generation ago were still being done to their children today and how those things hurt. And then they went on to talk about how some of those same painful things had been done to them, said about them, even in churches in the past. Now, they weren't outraged. They weren't calling anybody out. They just were asked a question. They were responding with a vulnerable and humble response. And in that moment, Carrie, Carrie saw this, and she just looked over at this precious woman. Uh, and she, Carrie, began to apologize as both a white person and as a church leader for those things that had been said or done or not done or not said. And she just asked, though she had done none of this herself, she said, will you just please forgive people like me for those things? And she said, Carrie went on to say, listen, we want Mosaic to be a great place for Asian people and for all peoples and for everyone else. And she said, I'm sorry if you haven't felt that from me, from us. And you know what that woman did in that moment? She began to cry a little. She began to smile a little. And she said, thank you for that. She said, I didn't even know I needed that. And here's where her words. She said, that was healing for me. That was healing for me. I love that because right there, what, what was being lived out? I think what was being lived out is something I'm going to call here, call the Micah 6 way. Micah 6 way, because Micah, you may know the name, he was this great Hebrew prophet. And he asked this question, how do we come together? How do we reconcile to the people around him? And he gave this answer. Micah 6, he says, he's shown you, God's shown you, oh mortal, because <laughs> that's you, by the way, what's good and what is, the, the prophet's got grouchy, you know, uh, what does the Lord require of you? He said, but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. 
And I love this because this shows us this two-sided coin. It shows us that if we want to be people of mercy, oh, we also have to act justly, don't we? We have to do the right thing, take responsibility for stuff. And Because isn't it true that many times people don't want to hear, you don't want to hear about giving mercy until sometimes you see justice, the right thing done first. Oh, but Micah also shows us this. It shows us if we want to be people who do bring justice into the world, we have to love mercy. Because if we don't, if we won't, our efforts at bringing justice will only end up looking like revenge. And revenge isn't walking humbly with our God. Oh, let me tell you, revenge is only walking bitterly alone. Hmm. Oh, yeah. And here's what, we put all this, this, all this together. It shows us that God's covenant-keeping mercy ought to create forgiveness-seeking people. Say it again. God's covenant-keeping mercy ought to create forgiveness-seeking people. And oh, right about now you're saying, Morgan, that's a lot. Man, it got real heavy, like real fast. Morgan, where in the world can I get the power to do any of this? Where can someone get the strength to live all this out? Well, someone named Anne Lamont. Anne Lamont is a writer who wrote a book about mercy. Great book. It's called Hallelujah Anyway. And in it, she tells the incredible story of someone named Lynn Twist. And Lynn Twist is an activist for global hunger causes with the Hunger Project. And she told the story about this African village she was working with that was in crisis. And the village's water supplies were gone. Its wells were running dry, and the village was hours out into the desert in Senegal where almost nothing grew, and the village was not eligible for government help. It was beyond the reach of the government. And so even if Lynn Twist Group had hauled out thousands of gallons of water, it wouldn't have made much of a difference for long. So they drove out to the village to try to find a solution, and when they arrived, they found the men drumming and the women sitting in a circle. And Lynn's group offered to try to relocate them, but the men refused. But then, then the women began to talk about something. The women began to talk about a, a, a lake beneath the sand, a water supply beneath the desert that they had only seen in visions. That the, the women had only dreamed in the dreams, but the women believed it was there. They knew it was there, but the men had refused to allow them to dig. So Lynn Twist Group got involved, negotiated between the men and the women, and the men, with this sort of collective male eye roll, were persuaded to allow the women to dig. And Lynn Twist said that for the next year, over and over, those women began to dig with their hands, dig with small shovels, and the men rationed the remaining water and watched and waited. But she said after a year of digging, those women found it. They found it. They came to an underground, unknown lake in the sand beneath the desert, just like they had seen in their visions. And now, now they have a well and a water system that cares for other villages. People are being educated and reading and writing. There's farming. And, and in Lamont, in Lamont connects this amazing true story to this topic of mercy. And in Lamont asks this question. How can we become people who are able to, find, to dig down deep and find mercy to give to others when maybe even we ourselves have been dry, gone without it for so long? She said this. I love this. She said, uh, going towards mercy, a huge shift like this often begins with desperation. Desperation is the gateway to the movement of grace. There can be no force. Nobody can make you do it. Force is self-will externalized. We can be only thirsty that somehow, like these men, we become willing to receive. 
She's saying we can give mercy if we've received mercy first. So how can we do that? How can we find what we need to be covenant keepers, to be forgiveness seekers? Here's how, friends. It is by digging into, going down deep, digging into another kind of vision. The true vision come to life. The vision from the angel come true. It's by seeing the heavenly vision. Jesus Christ, God come with the flesh. That Zachariah's impossible boy pointed to. And Zachariah's son, John, said, he looked at Jesus and he said, go dig there. Go look there. He must become greater. Uh, uh, I must become less. Behold, the Lamb of God, he takes away the sins of the world. Go look there. Go dig there and see what's in his heart. And if we'll do that today, we can find mercy to give. Because wasn't Jesus of Nazareth born into a merciless culture? He was full of hypocritical religious people on the one hand. Maybe you've experienced people like that. And full of cruel, paganistic, pluralistic people on the other. Maybe you've experienced someone like that. Jesus was the one who said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus was the one who said, you should keep the weightier matters of the law, such as mercy. Jesus was the one who said in his parable, when it came to showing mercy, he said, go, go, go and do likewise. And yet Jesus was the one, the one who showed mercy to all. He was the one who got mercy from none. His own people betrayed him. His own disciples abandoned him. And his own government crucified him. What was he doing? He was taking into his own heart, his own body, all the force of cosmic cruelty, all the judgment that humankind possessed and lived out, all the lack of mercy human beings give away. And what did he say while he was doing this? He prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing to me and to you. What was happening in the moment? Jesus Christ was putting mercy in the gap. He was putting mercy in the gap between heaven and humanity, between people and God. Jesus Christ was being the ultimate covenant keeper, and he was being the ultimate forgiveness seeker. Jesus denied mercy for himself because he demanded it for you and for you and for you and for me and for others. And come on, what's become of it? You know this, only the greatest good in human history, only your salvation, only your redemption, only reconciliation with an almighty loving God. You say, Morgan, but this is hard. And I know it's hard because when it comes to pain, when it comes to pain, when what's gone wrong, you want answers. People want answers. I want answers. I get it. And you know, accountability for actions matter for sure. History matters. When you look at your spouse, you want answers for what they did or said or didn't do or didn't say. When you look at your kids or back at your parents, you want answers. When you look at a person who said that thing about you, you want answers. And so do I. And you know what? Sometimes you get them. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you don't. And I'm not telling you not to go after answers today. But I do want to tell you to go after one kind of answer. And the answer that I have come to believe in. Because in the end, mercy is also an answer. Mercy is an answer because mercy is the answer that Joseph offered his brothers in Genesis when he gave them not just forgiveness, but he gave him a future. And that mercy saved his family and mercy saved the world. Mercy is the answer that Ruth gave to Naomi when she stayed in a multi-ethnic, multi-generational relationship with someone, though there was no reason for it. And the mercy she gave saved both their lives and saved the village of Bethlehem. Mercy is the answer that God gave the Ninevites 
when he sent a prodigal prophet named Jonah to preach to them, though they were Jonah's enemy. And because they repented, he relented, and his mercy saved the city. Mercy is the answer. Another father of another kind of prodigal gave when that father welcomed back the younger son who had wished him dead. And mercy is the answer that the good Samaritan gave his sworn religious and political enemy when he fished that enemy out of a ditch when he was dead and dying. See, church, mercy is an answer. Mercy is not weakness. Oh, it's not cowardice. No one, Anne Lamont said, can force you to do it. Oh, but imagine, imagine what kind of a community we could become if we could stay in relationship with one another through the ups and the downs of life, through the ups and the downs of new cycles, of media cycles, and yes, even another blessed election cycle coming to a nation near you in 2020. What kind of a community could we become if we sought out forgiveness? If we just said, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? I didn't know what I was doing. Imagine what kind of community we could be if we just kept that vision in the sand in front of us, the vision of the thing that could quench the thirst, outrage, anger, revenge. Imagine if we just gave away the gift of mercy because our Savior of mercy, our God of mercy had given that to us and we watched mercy triumph over judgment. Friend, you can give it if you've received it first. And if you never received it, let me tell you, today can be your day. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.